Hey everybody. Welcome back to Mysteries, Murders, Monsters, and Your Mom. Woohoo! We're the moms. We are moms. And I'm Julie. I'm Nicole. And I said that in a way that made me sound like I didn't quite know my own name. <laughs> well, it is Friday. We usually don't do this on Friday, so I I feel like I don't actually know my own name. No, so it's been a long week. When we came back from our like mini vacation this week and instantly went back to work the next day and I've been feeling it ever since. I think jet lag lasts for days <laughs> or maybe it's just that I'm older and then trying to travel as if I'm 20 something years old is just not happening anymore. Like it's just not a thing anymore. Yeah. Anytime <laughs> I do anything out of character for my regular week, it's like, oh God, I can't do this. Thank for yes. it for days. It does take longer. Anything. Even if I stay up past a certain time anymore, and I don't want to, like, say out loud on the air what time that is, because it's really <laughs> embarrassing, but, you know, I here went, we are. I went to bed at 7.30 last night, because I just couldn't, I couldn't live my life anymore. Been there, done that. sleep. Been there, done that. So, speaking of my trip, I'm going to mention this, because Nicole did a story about the conspiracies of the Denver airport, and that's where my husband and I flew into so all of the cool paintings that you had mentioned, I didn't see any of those. Well, and I believe when I write about it that they were all in storage recently, oh, yeah, but into storage. There's so. a ton of construction happening. Yeah. And I quickly saw like a, a planning poster and I think they're trying to make like a grass area. It's strange. I don't know. I, I, anyway, but, but she, the teepees were really cool. And she saw Lucifer. And I saw Lucifer, who I love his evil red eyes, but I did not see a penis. Like, I looked and I did not see one. <laughs> I was like, this is information that I need to know. But when I Googled it, it looked like there was one. So maybe it fell off. Maybe. Or maybe somebody took it off because they were like, well, maybe this is inappropriate. Which it's not. It's a right? freaking Mustang. Giant horse. And, you know, this is our kid-friendly episode. So, you know, maybe they oh were just... Oh, my God. I forgot we were doing that. That's okay. <laughs> I, I think that's okay. I mean, my daughter... We, now, we talk about these things, right? We right. tell our kids what these things are. It's important. It's a parenting thing. Right. All you parents out there totally get it. We're not psychos, really. But I do think yeah. that maybe, you know, it did fall off. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, it killed the guy who made it, so. Let's hope not. Okay, so, um, yeah, like Nicole said, this is our kid-friendly episode. So if you have kiddos, this episode should be PC enough and non-gory enough and not scary enough that they will be able to join in and listen with you. Yes. So, kid-friendly episode. Yeah, have your kiddos listen, so we're not going to talk about any blood, guts, or gore. No, even if they may like that, no, you and decide yeah, whether no, you want them to listen to the other episodes. Nothing too scary, right? Just something that... Um, so this is all because my daughter really wants to listen to an episode, yeah, and cute. so I, I was it. like, all right, we'll do something that... And so she picked my topic, so... That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and then I just want to say... Thank you to Donna at the Wellsboro Gazette. Donna LeSchneider. For um, featuring us in an article. That's really awesome. And yeah. a lot of people have 
commented or liked it and or started listening to the podcast yeah. so we really really appreciate that yes like, thank you donna and thank you small time newspapers for yeah, shouting out your local people right? doing fun stuff i love local stuff speaking of local that's where our beverages came from too yes this is not an ad it could be but it's not <laughs> bloss beverage ladies and gentlemen if you are of the 21 and older and like to drink age they do alcoholic slushies and there is a plethora of options and choices we chose the peach margarita and um it doesn't disappoint and it is surprisingly strong and i love it and it's great um yeah i've already like downed half of it it's really good <laughs> i start like I have such a lightweight. I've, I've only drank like a little bit of mine and I'm like, I can feel it. So I'm just going to slow down on the sipping because I'm a lightweight. And Apparently I'm not, but no. that's okay. <laughs> it's been a long week, my friends. All this means is that I am a cheap date, period. <laughs> All right. Now it's time for our little ad sponsor. Hey, fellow moms and listeners. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Well, Nicole and I are here to tell you how. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make pod to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. All right, Nicole, you're first this week. All right, we are going to talk about Stonehenge. So I say it and you immediately picture it in your head, right? Uh, like absolutely. you can see it. You, you can see it. We've all seen it. Even if you don't know anything about it, you know what it looks like. And I love things like that. We call those iconic, right? Literally. So it's been a source of speculation and mystery throughout the modern age. We know much more than we used to about it, but sometimes it's nice to hold on to the more mysterious side of an object. because There's a lot of magic in that mystery, right? I love magic. I'm and going mystery. to discuss all of, I'm going to st Analysis talk about He's back. How did he come back? <laughs> I'm sure he went to Stonehenge. I'm sure. I'm sure, right? Yeah. So I just had to say it. Sorry. We're going to talk about the construction, the meaning, and the uses of Stonehenge based on what we know and also based on some speculation, too. So Stonehenge's origins date back to almost 5,000 years ago. The structure, as we know it, was added to and developed over time. Initially, Neolithic Britons used primitive tools, which were possibly made from deer antlers and other such materials, to dig a massive circular ditch and bank, also known as a henge. Oh. Right. <laughs> I, I found that. I was, you know. The more you know. On, Star and rainbow. On the Salisbury Plain, which is where it is. Okay. Um, there are deep pits dating back to that era that are located within the circle. These pits are known as the Aubrey Holes. That's a horrible name. After a gentleman named John Aubrey, he was a 17th century antiquarian, which I'm someone who studies old things, I'm assuming. Um, he discovered the holes. And what's what they think is that they at one time held a ring of timber posts. Oh. Which obviously wouldn't survive. No. 
But that's why there's this ring of holes. You know, there's probably a lot of speculation as to what they were and what that was all about. But that's what they think that really was. Um, So several hundred years after, you know, Stonehenge was started, um, Stonehenge's builders hoisted an estimated 80 non-Indigenous bluestones 40 of three, which remain, re, 43 of which remain today into standing positions and place them in either a horseshoe or circular formation. These are the ones in the middle of the structure as we know it, not the ones on the outside, the ones in the middle. So if they're not from there, where are they from? Oh, we'll talk about okay. that. Okay. Okay. In fact, we're going to talk about right now that they're from Wales. Oh, okay. But I got, I got more. I got more on that. There's a lot of really cool information about that, but. And then during the third phase of construction, this is what I was saying, they think it's been done over. Like it started 5,000 years ago and then it just over time they started adding more things more. came and went, right? Yeah. Um, and during the third phase around 2000 BC is when they added the sarsen sandstone slabs, which are the big ones on the outside. Okay. The outer crescent or ring. Um some of those are also assembled into the iconic three-piece structures called trilithons that stand in the center of Stonehenge. And if you're picturing Stonehenge in your mind, you know what I'm saying, right? I just heard trilithon and all I can think of is like a, you know, like a Scottish, English, Comic-Con type situation. Yeah. <laughs> Which, why doesn't this exist? Oh, I'm sure there... We, no, we no, should start We should start one. And call it, what is it, Traumacon? Traumacon. Anyway, so um, like 50 of these stones are still visible at the site, but there was probably a lot more. I mean, it's pretty much, they're pretty clear at this point that there were probably more, um, the giant, the big ones, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Do they have an idea of what happened to those? Not exactly. Radiocarbon dating suggests that work continued at Stonehenge until roughly 1600 BC. Wow. um, Which... Particularly with the bluestones, they apparently moved those around a lot. They were the smaller ones. Mm-hmm. So, um, which kind of indicates, too, that different people were using the structure for different things because it existed for such a long time um, before it was kind right. of not used anymore. So, they were moved, and no one's really sure exactly why, but we'll get into more but of that. It possibly, in my brain, think like it could be tribal. If tribes are moving, sure. they're going to take it with them. Yeah. Anyway. So Stonehenge's um, sarsens, which are the larger stones, uh, the largest of which weighs more than 40 tons, by the way, and is 24 feet tall, were likely sourced from quarries, quarries, not quarries, that's a question, quarries 25 miles (laughs) north of Salisbury Plain. Most scientists have confirmed that they come from the chalk hills of the Marlborough Downs and suspected that they were transported with the help of sledges and ropes. A core sample was taken back in the 50s during a renovation. Um, There was some stuff falling down, so they brought these guys in and did some, like, you know... Reconstructive. Securing, right? Okay, you know. And when they were doing it, this one dude took, like, a core sample, Mm -hmm. and he kept it. And then he died, and he handed it back over to people and said, you know, like, his will, like, you know, and they took it. And so... Researchers um, carried out x-ray fluorescence testing of these, the, um, the sarsens that remain and then compared it with the, um, core sample. the core sample. And it 
they all come from the same area. So they determined that they all definitely come from the same area because they have the same chemistry. So that's the first step that they didn't come from different places. Mm -hmm. And then they analyzed the, um, other outcrops from Norfolk to Devon and compared their chemical composition with the chemistry of the piece of the returned core. And English Heritage says the opportunity to do a destructive test on the core proved decisive as it showed its composition matched the chemistry of sarsens as West Woods just south of Marlborough. So where they thought they came from Was is that? actually where they came from. Oh, that's so they cool. and they could prove they that that's definitely it. where they came from. That's cool. Yeah. So Professor David Nash from Brighton University, who led the study, said, it's been really exciting to harness 21st century science to understand the Neolithic past and finally answer a question that archaeologists have been debating for centuries. Using the same core sample, they were also able to determine that the stones were made from 99.7% quartz crystal. Oh, wow. The stones are practically indestructible. That's amazing. Right? According to a new study published in the journal PLOS One, what they saw were tiny grains of quartz arranged in an incredibly strong interlocking matrix of crystals, providing an ideal building material. David Nash, professor of physical geography at the University of Brighton, told Business Insider, the stone is incredibly, incredibly durable. It's really resistant to erosion and weathering. These cements are incredibly strong. I've wondered if the builders of the Stonehenge could tell something about the stone properties and not only chose the closest, biggest boulders, but also the ones they were most likely to stand the test of time. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Like, it's not just that they're giant. It's not just that they, you know, put them there. They are, like, you cannot get rid of them. Right. (laughs) They are 99.7% quartz crystal especially with like weather like you said right and the winter oh my gosh and and that's why probably a lot of it still exists because england is you know notorious for bad weather right yeah so now back to the smaller blue stones (laughs) these are the ones that are a lot more controversial like it's really cool that they found out all this stuff about the sarsens but like that Mm -hmm. wasn't that yeah 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 so it's like okay They've been tra- they've definitely been traced back to Wales to a place called the Presley Hills. And this is 200 miles away from Stonehenge. To be clear, 200 miles. This is where the debate begins really because how did prehistoric builders without sophisticated tools or engineering haul haul not hollow haul <laughs> these boulders which weigh up to 4 tons over such a great distance? According to one long-standing theory, Stonehenge's builders fashioned sledges and rollers out of tree trunks to lug the bluestones from the Presley Hills. They then transferred the boulders onto rafts and floated them first along the Welsh coast and then up the River Avon towards Salisbury Plain. Alternatively, they may have towed each stone with a fleet of vessels. More recent hypotheses have them transporting the bluestones with... You ready for it? Super-sized wicker baskets. And I, the image that popped <laughs> into my head. Can I get one of those, please? Right. I need it for the grocery store. I need it for everything. <laughs> or a combination of ball bearings, long-grooved planks, and a team of oxen. As early as the 1970s, geologists have been adding their voices to the debate over how Stonehenge came into being. Mm-hmm. So Aliens. most... Okay, the other people are talking mostly, you know, we're talking about archaeologists, right? Yeah. So let's bring in the geologists. Okay. Um, and they think 
<laughs> Challenging the classic image of industrious Neolithic builders pushing, carting, rolling, or hauling the craggy blue stones from faraway whales. Sorry, I had to read that part. It's so good. Scientists have suggested that glaciers, not humans, did the heavy lifting. Oh. So apparently the globe is dotted with giant rocks known as glacial erratics that were carried over long distances by moving ice flows. So perhaps Stonehenge's mammoth slabs were snatched from the Presley Hills by a glacier during one of the ice ages and deposited closer to the Salisbury Plain. But most archaeologists are like, yeah, no. Because they keep wondering how the forces of nature could possibly have delivered the exact number of stones needed right. to complete the circle. Right. Because we know at one time it was definitely in a circle. So... <laughs> The next question we're going to talk about is who built Stonehenge and why? All right. So who built Stonehenge is really the true mystery for me. This is the part that I'm most interested in because as a kid reading the crystal cave by Mary Stewart, I was very interested in Merlin and King Arthur mm -hmm. and all of that lovely Arthurian legend. And it's the best. Morgane. So, mm, yes. Yeah. So, and if you have kids, Maids of the Mist. Do you have kids? Yeah. Have them read all of the Mary Stewart books, starting with the Crystal Cave. I'm telling you, they're the best. But anyway, according to the 12th century writer Geoffrey of Monmouth, whose tales of King Arthur and the mythical account of English history were actually considered factual well into the Middle Ages. So. Mm -hmm. You know, people really believe for a long time that this is what happened with mm -hmm. English history. So Stonehenge is the handiwork of the wizard Merlin in the mid-5th century, as the story goes. Okay. So hundreds of British nobles, here's the story, by the way. Hundreds of British nobles were slaughtered by the Saxons and buried on Salisbury Plain, hoping to erect a memorial to his fallen subjects, King Aureolus, Ambrosius sent an army to Ireland to retrieve a stone circle known as the Giant's Ring, which ancient giants had built from magical African blue stones. The soldiers successfully defeated the Irish but failed to move the stones, so Merlin used his sorcery to spirit them across the sea and arrange them above the mass grave. Legend has it that Ambrosius and his brother Uther, King Arthur's father, were buried there as well. Huh. So, while many people believe Monmouth's account to be the true story of Stonehenge's creation for centuries, the monument's construction predates Merlin, or at least the real-life figures who are said to have inspired said stories. Right. So, even though it's a super cool story, and that's the one I really want to believe, mm -hmm. um, yeah, Merlin wasn't even around yet. When... But maybe Merlin is buried there. That's true. Wouldn't maybe that'd be cool. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of that stuff. So um, anyway, there's been a lot of other hypotheses that came up over that time, um, you know, that is attributed the building to Saxons, Danes, Romans, Greeks, and even Egyptians, which is pretty crazy, but makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, lots of big structures in Egypt, in case you didn't know. FYI. <laughs> It's all about oh, education on this podcast. Listen, art history major here. I can talk about this stuff all day. 
<laughs> so in the 17th century, archaeologist John Aubrey, who we mentioned before, made the claim that Stonehenge was the work of the Celtic high priest known as the Druids, which is also a really common theory. And a lot of people mm-hmm. have heard this before. Um, and then it was again popularized, popularized by another antiquarian named William Stuckley, who had unearthed primitive graves at the site. And even today, people who identify as modern druids continue to gather at Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. It's definitely been this whole thing. Isn't there like one you know, specific time of the year? Because the summer solstice. Hit, yeah. Summer solstice. Yeah. However, in the mid-20th century, radiocarbon dating demonstrated that Stonehenge stood more than a thousand years before the Celts inhabited the region. So once again, no, no, no. Not, no. not them. So it's just, you know... Not to say that this, a structure that's been there that long, not to say that other people didn't use it as their, for their right. own devices, right. right? But they didn't create it. But they it. definitely didn't create it. Yeah. So, so many modern it? historians and archaeologists do agree that several distinct tribes of people contributed to Stonehenge, each undertaking a different phase of its construction, which makes a lot of sense when you find out about the different, you know, the holes that held the timber, like a timber <clears throat> circle, and then how the bluestones were there first, and then the Saracens came. Like, the yeah. different parts came at different times. Um, so, anyway, bones, tools, and other artifacts found in the site seem to support this hypothesis. The first stage was achieved by Neolithic agrarians, which is farmers kids, farmers, or agrarians who were likely indigenous to the British Isles. Later, it's believed groups with advanced tools and more communal way of life left their stamp on the site. Some have suggested that they were immigrants from the European continent, but many scientists think they were native Britons descended from the original builders. It's just that their Mm -hmm. society, you know, developed and became, you know, they had outlying groups that were doing more of this like single identity farming and then they became more of a community and and, you know so it develops over time if the facts surrounding the architects and construction of stonehenge remain shadowy at best the purpose of the monument is even more of a mystery Mm -hmm. this is the one that nobody's really agreeing on there's you know um, there's evidence for the other, the other stuff. You know, you can archaeologists can look at the artifacts and say, all right, so you know these things are probably true, or we can look at the dating and say it definitely happened before this. So mm-hmm. these are the people who you know didn't build it. But as far as what people used it for, and again, I feel strongly that it was probably used for many different things over time. Right, especially if the structure was solid and with right. weather. Exactly. Yeah. And it's huge. You can fit a ton of people in it. And they agree that this place was important to people for over a thousand years. Mm -hmm. Like, this wasn't just a flash in the pan spot, you know. So a thousand years, I can't even think about that. It's such a long period of time. So um, we don't really know what drew early Britons to Salisbury Plain and can, like, you know, inspire them to continue developing it. But they did. Mm -hmm. Um, They're strong archaeological. What else were they doing? Right. (laughs) Evidence that Stonehenge was used as a burial site at least for part of its long history. Most scholars believe that it served other functions as well, but, you know, it could have been a ceremonial site, a religious pilgrimage destination, a final resting place for royalty, or a memorial erected to honor and perhaps spiritually connect with distant ancestors. So all of those are definitely possibilities, and all of them make a lot of sense. 
Um, so here's some that don't. In the 1960s, the astronomer Gerald Hawkins suggested the cluster of megalithic stones operated as an astronomical calendar with different points corresponding to astrological phenomena such as solstices, equinoxes, and ellipses. Eclipses. While this theory has received quite a bit of attention over the years, critics maintain that Stonehenge's builders probably lack the knowledge necessary to predict such events, or that England's dense cloud cover would have obscured their view of the sky. So it's a really cool idea to sit there and say, yeah, they put them there because of this solstice or the equinox. And right. But the reality is, in that time, that long ago, they probably weren't capable of doing that. And also, I mean, we've all heard about, I haven't been, we're going to go. My daughter really wants to go to England. Mm -hmm. But we've all heard about the weather in England. And I bet they don't get a lot of clear nights. Yeah, I'm trying. I was there <laughs> once, and I just remember being incredibly hot. I don't remember a lot of sun. It was very hot. Right. So, yeah. but you know, if you're thinking about aligning yeah. the stars, I don't think I got to the sun until I was in Finland. You know, the Salisbury enough. Plains of England <laughs> don't seem like the place where you're going to really, you know, yeah. be developing that. Yeah. The astronomers. They've also found more recently that signs of illness and injury in the humans that remain unearthed at Stonehenge led a group of British archaeologists to spec... Oh my gosh. I wrote that sentence. It's not very good. <laughs> so... so <laughs> Mom squad. So they unearthed some, 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 some bones... And they found signs of illness and injury to them that speculate that they thought it might have been in a place of healing. Oh. Okay. So they took people there, um, you know, to get healed. Mm -hmm. And it's also been known that... blue the quartz? Well, and the blue stones. The blue oh. stones were thought to have curative powers. Mm. Um, probably because they came from somewhere else. You know, they're kind of exotic. Like, right. that's kind of how that thing, that whole thing works, right? Um one theory about Stonehenge released in 2012, pretty new one, mm -hmm. by a member of the Stonehenge Riverside Project is that Stonehenge marks the unification of Britain, a point when people across the island worked together and used a similar style of houses, pottery, and other items. And this would explain why they were able to bring blue, stain, blue stones all the way from West Wales and how the labor and resources for the construction were marshaled. Stonehenge itself was a massive undertaking, requiring the labor of thousands to move stones from as far away as West Wales, shaping them and erecting them. Just the work itself, requiring everyone literally to pull together, would have been an act of unification, said Professor Mike Parker Pearson of the University of Sheffield. So, Stonehenge is arguably one of the most famous megalithic monuments in the world. It's also one of the most mysterious with his prehistoric concentric rings garnering plenty of speculation as to why and how they were constructed. Today, Stonehenge is one of the most famous and recognizable sites in the world. Stonehenge draws more than 800,000 tourists a year. It's one of the seven wonders. And now a highway drives right it's by it. It's not, actually. It's not? No. Shut up. No, it's not. Well, they better not. make eight then. <laughs> Many of whom... Clearly, I don't know which seven are the wonders of the world. <laughs> Most of them don't exist anymore. It might be, a, like, a new one, but the old ones, it doesn't exist. Sorry, art history major again. Yeah, I don't know. Many of whom also cool. visit the region's numerous other Neolithic and Bronze Age marvels. In 1986, Stonehenge was added to UNESCO's Register of World Heritage Sites in a co-listing with Avebury 
which is a Neolithic henge located seven miles away and is older and larger than its famous neighbor. But, oh my gosh, neighbor. I really am not. I got it. Neighbor. <laughs> neighbor. Can't do this today. I don't even think it's that. I think I'm just done. I think my brain shut off at 3 30, 4 o'clock at work today. Never doing this on a Friday again. <laughs> I apparently have nothing left. I promise. I don't even, it's not even that. I promise. I seriously have nothing left. It's been a very long week. Hence the whole, hence the whole back to school thing, right? Anyway. So the whole point I'm trying to make is there are all other stone henges. Right. Henges. There are henges all around. So why is this one so popular? I, I, I don't know, and I didn't really find anything that told me, but I did think it was pretty interesting that there's a bunch of other ones, you know, yeah. around. And so anyway, and there's ones that are even bigger. Well, right? it, like I go back to that, uh, I like what the one guy said that he thinks maybe it was the unification of England and they were mimicking mm-hmm. houses because if that's the case, it would make sense. They probably had one great hall yeah. where they all congregated together. So if there's mm-hmm. one here and then there's one down the road, they would build them based on the size of yeah. like the tribe or the community. I think that makes a lot of sense. It does make a lot of sense, especially as the, you know, they know it happened so long ago and they were developing these communities at that time, right? right. They were, you know, progressing from agrarian to having more of a town a structure. Word. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were doing all that at that time, and I think so. It makes a lot of sense, and also because it kept changing too. They kept adding to it and doing different yeah. things, which makes sense that it's part of a changing structure and yeah. development. Yeah, um, I do. I do have this like picture though of the wicker basket that will never leave my mind. <laughs> that they carried stones in a giant oh wicker God. basket, and I, I I don't know if I'm ever gonna get past that because I read it, I typed it. I thought about it and it literally is just stuck with me this whole time because I look at baskets now and I'm like, why isn't it giant and has, you know, an ancestor massive four ton stones in it. <laughs> no, that wasn't the four ton stuff. All my wicker is going to hold stones from now on. Right. Like, but I'm surprised you didn't mention the ancient alien theorists surmising <laughs> that aliens did it. Well, because aliens constructed literally everything on this earth. That's crazy, right? Right, because apparently, if you're an ancient alien theorist, you, you don't think that humans are capable of anything Nothing. at all. Nothing. Humans can't do shit. It's it, all aliens. I did the whole thing without swearing. I'm so sorry. So, uh, you know, it happens. But anyway, yeah, that's one of my biggest problems, the whole ancient alien thing. Mm-hmm. So we have to credit everything to aliens because us humans can't do anything? Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> We're not subscribing I'm to not that. saying that the wicker basket's true, but I'm definitely thinking that humans figured out a way because... Obviously we are resourceful. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. I'm, I mean, if the Vikings can travel across continents using, like, a crystal compass, which is not exactly what it was. Google if you don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. We could figure out a way to float some rocks down a damn river. Exactly. Okay. Right. Okay. So, this week, I'm going back to England because... Uh, all the uh, kid-friendly episodes happen in England, obviously. And I'm going to talk about Nessie. Yay! And if you don't know who that is, just give me a second and I'll tell you. So, nestled in the Scottish Highlands lies a body of water called the Loch Ness. 
It's a freshwater lock and at its deepest point is 230 meters or for us Americans, 755 feet, making it the second deepest lock in Scotland with Loch Morar, Morar? Yeah, sure, being the deepest. But Loch Ness is most famous for its cryptozoology or cryptid known as the Loch Ness Monster or Nessie, as Yay. she's been adornly nicknamed. Yes, she has. So Nessie has been around for a very long time, or maybe not Nessie herself, but maybe her ancestor, ancestors. See, I'm doing it too. We're awesome today. Whichever <laughs> it is, the Loch Ness Monster has had sightings ever since the 6th century. So, uh, and I'm going to talk about all of, you know, like the first sightings up to like when it started to get really big to current sightings, the technology used to try to find her and or anything that may be in Loch Ness. Also, there's a dog here, so sorry about the barking in the background. Anyway, so the one of the first sightings of the Loch Ness monster occurred in 50, 50, no, 564 AD and came from the book called Life of St. Columba, which was written by Otto Maman. According to him, the Irish monk named St. Columba was staying in the land of the Picts when he came across the burying of a man by the river Ness. The locals performing the burial told him that the man had been swimming in the river when he was attacked by a, quote, water beast that mauled him and dragged him into the water. Although the man tried to rescue him by boat, they were unsuccessful. So as the story goes, Columba sent one of his followers named Lugene Mokumin to swim across the river. The beast did approach him, but Columba made the sign of the cross and spoke to the beast saying, go no further, do not touch the man, go back at once. And the creature stopped and fled. The magic of Christ, I guess. Right. Apparently. Obviously. So the so by many many people feel that this story may have been recycled from the medieval uh, hygographies, I think is what they're called, mm -hmm. um, about a water beast that were common within that area. So to rewind just for a second, the Picts were a tattooed tribe that lived in the Highlands. It's said that they were fascinated by animals and rendered them with great fidelity. So in the Pictish stones, which is like the, the drawings, mm -hmm. um, you can see lifelike and easy, easily recognizable animals and creatures except for one, which is described by the people as being a strange beast with an elongated beak or muzzle, a head locket or spout, and flippers instead of feet, almost like a swimming elephant. These Pictishes are the earliest known evidence of the monster and held sway over its people for 1,500 years, the simple belief that Loch Ness was home to a mysterious aquatic animal. That's super cool. Yeah. So as time went on, uh, there were several sightings of something in the loch. Some have been debunked, and some of the ones that stuck with uh, the history of the Loch Ness um, kind of started with uh, a man named George Spicer in 1933. So on July 2nd, George and his wife were driving when they state that they came across something that was in front of their car. He described it as having a large body, about four feet high, 25 inches wide. It was wavy. It had a long, narrow neck, but thicker than an elephant's trunk and was as long as the road, which was about 10 to 12 feet wide. He noted that it had no limbs and the thing was headed towards the lock, leaving a trail of undergrowth behind it. 
He also states that this being um, had an animal in its mouth and that it moved incredibly fast. Uh, Spears said, the nearest approach to a dragon or prehistoric animal that I've ever seen in my life, end quote. Hmm. As he tried to follow it, he noted that it disappeared into the block. So this account was published in the um, August edition of The Courier and triggered a massive public interest and in more alleged sightings, and then came the name The Loch Ness Monster. Oh. And there were other sightings before this, but it wasn't really until George came out with his story and it came that out with this People paper were basically like, yeah, this is happening. started coming out and talking about it. So it's also safe to note that in 1933, a road was actually built which ran along the lock. So possibly, you know, with tourists and, mm-hmm. you know, people going back and forth to work that, it, you know, it caused this uptick in uh, sightings. Makes sense. So also in 1933, because, you know, it was a very popular year for Nessie, um, High Gray, which I guess is his name, photographed what he believes is the monster in November of that year, but it turns out that um, the photograph was just an otter rolling on the surface. And I'm noting that they say <laughs> otter because we're going to come back to this, all right, like, all otter right. I'm ready the water theory. To know about otters. So, in 1934, a veterinary student claims he almost hit a creature near uh, Abria Con around around 1 a.m. He describes what he saw as being a cross between a seal and a plesiosaur, which is a dinosaur. Uh, He said he tried to follow it, but when he got to the lock, all he saw was ripples in the water. Again, it's thought by zoologists that Grant saw an otter or a seal and then just may have exaggerated his sightings over time, of course. Of course, it's an otter. Then there's what's known as the surgeon's photo. Yes. So, Robert Kenneth Wilson who was a London gynecologist of all things, took, <laughs> which is a lady doctor, took a photo that was published in the Daily Mail in April of 1934. And according to... He also did not want his name attached to this photo. He was just simply submitting it. He said it wasn't his. All right. According to him... He Wait, was, one of the ladies brought it in as part of her appointment? Well, so there's a weird... Yeah, he, so he just didn't want his name attached to this, but according to him, he was looking at the lock when he saw a monster, grabbed his camera, and snapped four photos. Only two of the exposures were clear enough, um, but the first photo shows a small head and back, and the second shows a similar head in a diving position. The photo has been considered the main evidence that Nessie exists for over 60 years. However, there's always those that just don't want to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so a book published in 1999 states that the creature that was photographed was reportedly a toy submarine built by Christian Sperling, who was the son of... Uh, the son-in-law of a man named Marmaduke Weatherell, who had been publicly ridiculed by his employer, which was the Daily Mail, and after he found Nessie footprints, which turned out to be fake. So the two decided to get revenge on the paper, and the two men, with help from two others, uh, created what they say is the creature in the photograph. So it was basically this specific toy submarine that was purchased from Woolworths, Um, And the head and the neck were made from a combination of wood and putty. They tested this model in a local pond, and it floated, and it did what it wanted it to, so then they took it to Loch Ness. One from the group took a few photos, and when they heard a water bailiff approaching, they sunk the model with his foot and is presumably still somewhere in the loch. This sounds so much like Bigfoot. I mean, but... The original, like, you know, the, the, the famous Bigfoot right, film, and I'm yeah. not remembering the name of the two guys, but... Yeah, but, like, the... I'll post a picture of, like, the diagram of mm-hmm. this supposed 
toy submarine and I just I I, eh, I just don't believe it okay so aside from film as time and technology move forward video and sonar started to be used to try and capture something in the lock or even to disprove that there was a monster using these devices there were several expeditions some purposely trying to find the monster and others that were just you know ha just happened to be testing their tech they weren't actually looking mm -hmm. for anything in 1934, there was the Edward Mountain Expedition. 20 men camped out on the shores of the nest from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. for five weeks. A total of 21 photographs were taken, but none were considered conclusive, and most zoologists and professors concluded that the film showed possibly a seal. Whatever. In 1967, D. Gordon Tucker was testing new sonar equipment in the Loch Ness. His device was fixed at Temple Pier in Urquhart Bay and directed the camera to the opposite shore, drawing what's considered to be like an acoustic net, meaning that nothing in the Loch Ness could pass by it undetected. undetected. During a two-week trial in August, there were multiple targets identified. Although one was probably a specific fish that lived in the area, it's noted that others moved in a way that was not typical of the specific fish, within the nest and moved at a speed of up to 10 knots. I don't know exactly know what that is in like car speed, but. And then there was Robert Rines. He made several expeditions in 1972, 1975, 2001, and 2008. So he took like a 30 year. <laughs> Seriously, I like maybe, he probably had to like get money for this Are stuff. Right? I'm sure it's I'm sure, yeah. So during these expeditions, they found evidence of something in the lock that was large in size, and photos suggest that uh, something that is possibly a plea—I'm going to say this wrong—plesiosaur-like animal, ple like plesiosaurus. Ple it's the dinosaur yeah. again. Gotcha. Same dinosaur. Um, and in 2001, a videotape showed a V-shaped wake traversing the water on a calm day, and also showed an object on the floor of the lock resembling a carcass. And also found marine clamshells and a fungus-like organism that is normally not found in freshwater locks. Weird. Yeah. So then in 2008, Ryan theorized that the creature may have become extinct due to uh, the decline in eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts and possibly uh, them failing to survive or adapt to temperature changes due to global warming. So, like, not a lot of people have said, oh, I see the monster. You know, like, right. basically in the 30s was like, yes, we see it, we see it, we see it. And right. since well, then, it's kind of, like, died off. Like, nobody but, sees and it. And that makes sense because, obviously, as we experience all these climate changes. Right. But also, if it's not, like, reproducing, if there's only one. Right. Eventually, it's going to die. Mm -hmm. So, that makes sense. So then there was Operation Deep Scan. In 1987, 24 boats equipped with eco-sound equipment were deployed across the lock while also sending out acoustic waves. They contacted an unidentified object of unusual size and strength. And after examining the sonar return, they noted something was large and moving at a depth of 590 feet near the Urquhart Bay. And Daryl Lawrence, who's a sonar expert, states, there's something here that we don't understand, and there's something here that's larger than a fish, maybe some species that hasn't even been detected before. I don't know. Cool. And then, in this is where the seal part comes All back right. in. So, in 2018, a DNA survey of the lake was completed looking for unusual species. 
So the results, which were published in um, 2019, state that there's no DNA of a large fish such as sharks, sturgeons, or even a catfish. Also, DNA of otters and seals were not found either. And mm-hmm. that's been the whole, oh, well, it was an otter. Oh, it was a seal. Oh, it's this. That's oh, super it's that. weird. The DNA that they did find was that largely of eels. Um, also stated is that eels of a large size could not be ruled out, although none were found or have ever been caught. Hmm. So there's the possibility of there being a large amount of eel. Um, DNA may simply just come from many small eels. But there was no evidence of any reptilian species either. So like a lot of things with just this one study alone have been completely ruled out. Wow. That's um, really crazy. But it also makes me wonder like where is like is it connected to the river nest like where's the water coming in right. and out of so maybe the water's just like filtering through and like cleaning it's it. like a, it was a visitor <laughs> right just popped yeah. in for like a minute it just like flowed through and it's gone so then in 2014 apple maps had taken satellite images of Loch Ness nest that show something very large swimming just under the water's surface many many people believe that this is nessie while others are not so certain so those who believe state it's impossible that it's a shark or whale as they wouldn't swim into fresh water. And honestly, to me, it looks like a giant whale shark. But they don't swim in fresh water, and they also swim only in warmer climates. Hmm. But that's exactly what it looks like. It just looks like a giant um, gotcha. whale shark. Yeah. So then let's talk about folklore for a minute. So in 1980, a Swedish nat- naturalist, Arthur, author, not Arthur, author, <laughs> named Bengt uh, Sorgen, Sorgrenen, Sorgrenen, uh, and states that present beliefs in lake monsters are associated with Kelpie legends. So according to him, the account of lock monsters have changed over time. Originally, they were described as horse-like creatures and mm-hmm. were intended to keep children away from the lock. These creatures were used as stories to scare children from going to the shores, stating that these creatures were magical but had malevolent intentions. Mm-hmm. The Kelpie was a water horse that lived in the Loch Ness. And that um, has changed uh, into, you know, reflecting a modern um, awareness of Pleiosaurus. Don't open the door again. So, um... Highland folklore references kelpies, water horses, and water bulls living in, lo- in living in the Loch Ness were sighted frequently, and these so-called monsters have probably been around longer than we even realize. So Alistair Boyd, who was an eyewitness, states, I, and I'm going to quote this, and this is going to be on the end of my story, is that I am so convinced of the reality of these creatures that I would actually stake my life on their existence. I trust my eyesight. I used to make my living teaching people how to observe, and I know that the thing I saw was not a log or an otter or a wave or anything like that. It was a large animal. It came heaving out of the water, something like a whale. I mean, the part that was actually on the surface when it stopped rolling through was at least 20 feet long. It was totally extraordinary. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life, and if I could afford to spend the rest of my life looking for another glimpse of it, I would. Wow, that's really cool. That's it. Well, and that's why I said it reminds me of Bigfoot. It's not even that, like, you know, the film idea, like, they saw something or the pictures and, Mm -hmm. you know, people are dismissing it or whatever. Like, I feel like it's Bigfoot because that's kind of the Bigfoot story where the people who've seen it or have had experiences, Mm -hmm. like, feel 
and proclaim strongly that it's so real and yet there's so many ways to kind of you know dismiss right. it right or right. it's a hoax or it's this or it's but that like, that 1933 picture is honestly the only photo that anyone has really gotten which is crazy what the Loch Ness supposedly looks like because yeah. everything else is just like eyewitness accounts but at the same time it's not like we have any fucking photos of aliens either I swore <laughs> sorry ladies and gentlemen she did so well <laughs> I did but it's not like we have evidence of aliens either right I mean, we only go by eyewitness accounts. So why would this be any different? And like I said earlier, I totally believe that something like this possibly existed in this lock. But unless there were multiples of them, it's at this point in time, because it's been so long, it probably doesn't exist anymore. Right. Because it's, you know, it's probably died. Like if it's not reproducing and it's, it's, all, it's only in existence... It's probably gone. Well, and animals in changing climates and different parts of the world are having trouble reproducing as it is. So, like, it's it's definitely a normal thing. And honestly, we're (laughs) discovering new species of animals all the time. time. So it's not it's not crazy to me at all. In fact, it's way less crazy than Bigfoot. Yeah. Right. Which maybe we'll do an episode about that. But Bigfoot stuff is so much crazier than this. It's almost eight hundred feet deep. You don't know what's down there. So um, deep ocean, I mean, deep lock, deep, yeah. whatever stuff. That stuff's crazy. Yeah. It's dark. You don't know. Not everybody's been down there and it's too cold. You yeah. can't get down there. So that's my story of the Loch Ness, the monster, also known as Nessie. So that's it. That's our kid friendly episode. Yeah. Thanks for joining and Hi. listening and All hanging things. out with us. I hope your kids like this. I do apologize for the three swear words I kept count that we dropped. Yeah, not um, too bad for us. We usually yeah. are way worse. Oh, especially me. Like I think, like I swear every other word. Like <laughs> I'm basically a sailor on yeah. land. That's it. So um, also, no more Friday episodes. No, we're definitely. Done with the Friday thing. Yeah, it's been a long week. It was a long day. Um, Julie brought me this delicious margarita. So. Um, yeah, next time, not doing the Friday thing. But <laughs> I hope everyone enjoys it, nonetheless. Uh, so follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 4M Podcast. And if you have your own stories that you would like to share, whether it's a parenting story, a spooky story, a true crime that happened in your area that you know of, email us at mysterymompodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear. Thank you for everybody who's tuned in, subscribed, and listened. Yes. If you haven't done that, please do that because, you know, the more you like us and follow us and rate and review us, the more we get noticed and the easier we are to find. So, with that said, our children are just outside the door. I was going to say, if you hear that screaming. There's pizza waiting for us. It's after 8. We're hungry. We're tired. It's been a long week. I said it like 700 times, but it's (laughs) true. But again, thank you, everybody, for joining us on this kid-friendly episode. We'll be back next week with a more horrific and graphic episode that you don't want your children to listen to. Woohoo! Yay! So with that, good night, everybody. Peace out. Your moms love you. Bye!